Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint uh, uh, video podcast series. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I am the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. Uh, I started the Alliance uh, really to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion happening in schools, but we're really interested in so much more. Uh, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, all the things that are happening to kids. And we're interested in, in promoting models to better support children. Our mission is that educate the public and to get people together who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices. So that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated from schools across the nation and beyond. Our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. Really, really excited today. We have a very special guest. We have Dr. Stuart Shanker joining us for a special interview today. This session is actually being recorded. We're recording today. It's May 18th on uh, 2021. Uh, it's going to be recorded and it will be available later on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. So before we introduce our guest, uh, let me go ahead and introduce you to someone that you probably know well. Uh, I want to introduce my uh, amazing co-host, Beth Tolley. Uh, Beth is the Director of Educational Strategy here at the Alliance against seclusion restraint. She retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency uh, for early intervention for infants and toddlers. And uh, that retirement was an opportunity for uh, you know, us to work together. And you know, Beth, I know you've been busier than ever. Of course, you have experience as a parent and grandparent of children that have had behavioral uh, challenges that's fueled your passion uh, to support and improve the lives of children and their families through mutual support and advocacy. So Beth, as always, welcome. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. So I know that we are both very excited about our guests, so I'm going to go ahead and bring him up. And if you would introduce Dr. Shanker, that would be fantastic. Great. Um, I'm going to read this because I want to get all the words right. Uh, I'm thrilled today to have uh, Stuart Shanker here um, on our show and to be able to speak directly with him. Dr. Stuart Shanker is a distinguished research professor emeritus of philosophy and psychology and the CEO of the Merit Center Limited. His latest books, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society, um, and Self-Reg Schools, A Handbook for Educators, co-authored with Susan Hopkins, is a follow-up to Calm, Alert, and Learning, Classroom Strategies for Self-Regulation. His book, Self-Reg, How to Help Your Child and You Break the Stress Cycle and Successfully Engage with Life, still garners enthusiastic reviews and media attention throughout North America and has been published in the UK, US, Poland, Germany, China, South Korea, the Netherlands, and the Czech Republic. Um, I got to say, self-help is self-reg, self-help. Self-reg is how I first learned of you. Um, from actually from a parent group, the Lives in the Balance parent group. In 2012, Dr. Shanker founded the Merit Center as a self-reg learning and information center. Stork commits considerable time to bringing the research and science of self-reg to parents, early childhood educators, teachers, educational leaders, health practitioners, and communities through his writings, presentation, online courses, webinars, social media, and a blog entitled The Self-Reg View. And I'll just um, make a couple comments here that I have um, recently joined a new endeavor that um, Dr. Shanker is doing, the um, uh, Global Self-Reg with monthly uh, presentations, which is just 
fabulous. Uh, and uh, you're, you're presenting new stuff all the time while expanding on the, the basic information. And I have found it tremendously um, enlightening and hopeful. I, I also want to say one of my favorite things in the self-read book was your introduction where you described yeah. the teacher. Yeah, I mean, that you had me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here today. Thank you, Beth. And Beth, you wear your number one fan shirt. I mean, I thought you might. <laughs> so, Dr. Schenker, we are, we are really excited to have you here today and really appreciate you making time to, to talk to us. Um, you know, we really, um, you know, I think uh, really respect the, the work that you've done and the, the influence that it's had and are really excited. I mean, you know, we started doing these uh, uh, presentations uh, a bit over a year ago. And as Beth will uh, know well, we enjoy doing them for the uh, information that we can learn, but it's such a pleasure to be able to share this work with, with so many others out there and a hope for, uh, you know, changing the world. So thank you so much for, for all that you're doing. Let me just tell you, Guy, that uh, your alliance is actually the reason why I got into this work in the first place. So I deeply believe in everything you guys are trying to achieve. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I, I was having a conversation with another uh, ally recently and said, you know, kind of, we're all in this together, you know, yeah. um, th there are things that we can do and, and anything we can do to work together is fantastic. So uh, again, welcome. And uh, we're going to start off with some questions here just to share with the audience a little bit more about who you are and kind of the work that you did. So I want to start off with just getting us some very basic background of uh, kind of when did you become interested in, in child development and, and how did your career take that turn into where you are now? Uh, well, I was um, uh, a graduate student and then a postdoc fellow at Oxford, uh, the university. And uh, I was there and Jerry Bruner, Jerome Bruner was there. And Jerry became um, not just uh, a huge influence on me, but uh, also a very close friend. Uh, at the time, when I was at Oxford, I was working on artificial intelligence, and uh, um, Jerry was lecturing on child development. So, you know, I do all this work on AI models, and then I go and learn a little bit about reality from uh, the reality of child development from Jerry. And uh, at some point, Jerry said to me, you know, you're going to have to make the jump here because apart from Teflon, I'm not sure what these guys have produced, uh, but in child development, um, we've really learned a lot. So uh, that's a long answer to your question. It goes back to um, it goes back to the middle 80s. But let me give you a further answer. OK, Guy, and that take us into our work today. That sounds great. Uh, I was actually specializing on something called self-modifying algorithms. And that was the AI version of um, a model called homeostasis mm -hmm. that was developed in the US by an American physiologist, uh, Walter Bradford Cannon in the early 20th century. And uh, Cannon was very interested in what he called self-regulation. And for him, self-regulation was very much a, a, a physiological concept. So here I was, I was specializing in self-regulation as Cannon understood it. And basically, all it meant for Cannon was how we manage stress. Hmm. Uh, you know, we can manage stress in a way that is growth-promoting. And if it's growth-promoting, that's what Cannon calls homeostasis, balance. Balance must be tied to growth. Or we can handle 
uh, stress in a maladaptive way. Um, so, for example, you know, I'm really stressed, so I'm going to start to drink. And that's a maladaptive, you know, it may soothe you for a moment, but it creates more stress and more problems down the road. That's a maladaptive way of dealing with stress, and that leads to dysregulation. So I had uh, worked very hard on the physiology, and it's it's really an American story. It, tra it traces up uh, through a number of physiologists who were trying to develop um, uh, what are called cybernetic mechanical models. And when I came to Canada, I gave a lecture on self-regulation. Self-regulation as... I understood it as I'd been working at it at, on it at Oxford. And somebody heard it and said, you know, this is a real big thing in Canada right now, self-regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I run a journal called Education Canada. Would you write an article for us? Because I know everybody would be interested in your perspective. So I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read up um, what these people are saying about self-regulation. And honestly, I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't self-regulation as we understood it. Uh, they were really talking about variations on self-control. Uh, and uh, we eventually, at my institute, we did a study, and we found that there are 447 different definitions of self-regulation out there. Wow. Uh, uh, 446 of them are variations on self-control. Mm -hmm. So that's what I started to explain. Uh, I started to explain the physiology of self-regulation, which requires explaining the nature of stress and how we deal with it. Fantastic. I, isn't it interesting, the the uh, the way our stories sometimes twist and, twist and turn, I mean, from <laughs> artificial intelligence to, uh, you know, self-regulation and, and supporting children. Uh, what an amazing uh, journey. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to take you right into that, um, the self-reg versus self-control, because I yep. think that is still huge in our schools. I think the two are confused. Um, could you uh, clarify the difference? Okay, let's do it with an example. Okay. So I started to do this work, I, writing papers, and then eventually that first book you mentioned, Calm Alert and Learning. And everybody back then was talking about uh, a test that Walter Mischel had designed called the marshmallow test. Everybody knows that now. And if, if, if your viewers don't know it, they can see it online. Sesame Street, the diversion. And this was widely discussed as a proof of how important self-control is for young children. So here we had kids uh, in the original test, they were between four and six years old. Um, and uh, the test is very simple. You know, here's one marshmallow. Um, you get a second marshmallow if you wait for the experimenter to come back for 15 minutes. And then they made the most extraordinary predictions about how these children's lives would turn out um, if uh, they demonstrated self-control. Uh, well, I come from a school that doesn't like making any kind of prediction about a child's future. Um, uh, children have, anyone has endless possibilities and endless, endless ways that they can develop and grow. Uh, so I decided to look at this very carefully. And I was shocked because um, the test I was looking at was clearly a test of self-regulation as we understood it. Now, why? Well, it's a stress test and it's been designed as a stress test. Um, I was once uh, explaining this um, with uh, a very famous Canadian astronaut and he 
jumped in and said, you know, that's the test we do on astronauts. It's an isolation chamber. Uh, that's what we're doing with the kid. Um, we remove any sort of distraction, anything they might find interesting. We put them in a windowless room all by themselves. And then we say to the child, you know, if you wait, you're going to get a second marshmallow. Uh, well, well, first of all, we found when we did the study that hardly any kids like marshmallows enough that they were going to do anything for a second marshmallow. So we had to find something that they'd want. So we, we ended up with Oreo cookies. But then if you watch these tests very carefully, what you'll see, the tests tell us something, by the way. It's a good test. It's just not telling us anything about self-control. If you watch these tests, what you'll see is that for a lot of kids, about two-thirds of them, um, this marshmallow that's placed in front of their eyes becomes a huge stress and they don't know how to deal with it. So we find them rocking, we find themselves soothing, trying to distract themselves. And a lot of the kids end up eating the marshmallow to get rid of the stress. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's very interesting. So it's like um, it, that movie, Nanny McPhee's Cult, where they say to the kids, don't look at the carbuncle on her nose. And of course, that's all the children can look at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what the test was telling us was that around a third of the children could self-regulate in a really growth-promoting way, in a constructive way. They could deal with the stress by, let's say, self-soothing. And psychologists call these cognitive competencies. Now, our question was, okay, two-thirds of the kids don't have these competencies. So there's two possibilities here. Either can be true or both can be true. One is that they, these kids haven't developed constructive ways of dealing with the stress. The other is they have developed them, but the stress just just so great of this isolation experiment that it blocks out what they've learned. It blocks out their abilities. They get over. They get flooded by by the stress of the situation, and the only way they can get out of it is by getting rid of the thing that's making them nuts. Mm -hmm. So uh, from there, what we started to look at, uh, just to answer Beth's question, is okay. So how many of these experiments that were uh, supposedly showing us something about self-control in children are really actually telling us something about whether the child is constructively dealing with stress or has maladaptive ways of dealing with stress. And it turns out that pretty much any psychology experiment on, done on kids um, from, let's say, the 60s until now <laughs> uh, is really a stress test. They're all different kinds of stress tests, including an IQ test, which is also a stress test. Well, that gives us an incredible opening because what it means is if I've got a child now that's showing me that they don't have uh, constructive ways of dealing with stress, that's something I can teach. That's something I can help them with. So then we, the next step was we wanted to find out, well, at what age can I actually help a child develop Mm -hmm. um, constructive ways of dealing with stress. And what we found was around the age of three, at the age of three, children can start to learn how to manage their stress constructively. Now, they may not have the language. You may have to explain these concepts in ways that are suited to a three-year-old. So you're not going to use big words like self-regulation. We actually, with our three-year-olds, we used uh, two dolls. We used a Buzz Lightyear doll, stiff, 
and we used a Raggedy Ann. And mm. we said, we'd say to the kid, so how do you feel? Do you feel like Buzz or do you feel like Raggedy Ann? And now what can we do? If you feel like Buzz, what can we do? So you become more floppy like Raggedy Ann. So we help them uh, acquire techniques for reducing the tension, reducing the anxiety, reducing. Um, and then you know what? Then you see a new kid. Then you see a kid that's going to blow you away. And it happens every time. That's why I do the work I do. It is amazing. And and so what, what it sounds like you're teaching in that, in that situation is you're teaching cognitively. They yes. have to do some strategies. Um, I yes. know that a lot of what you've taught is parents and adult, other adults, teachers. Um, I believe it's five steps to reduce yes. the stress. Could you talk yes. a little bit about that? So what Beth is talking about there is uh, the actual method that's called self-reg. And um, the five steps are first reframe. Reframe, uh, we want parents and teachers. So I'll, I'll target this guy specifically to the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's very important in all of our school initiatives across Canada. The very first thing we want to teach teachers is how to reframe behavior. That means that they have to understand that there's a big difference, a big distinction between misbehavior and stress behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, misbehavior is behavior that's intentional. Misbehavior is the child is conscious of what they're doing. The child is testing limits, wants to see how far he can push. Do children misbehave? Well, of course they do. I mean, it's part of human nature to see how far you can push. But the majority of cases we were being called in to consult on were actually stress behaviors. And stress behavior comes from a very different part of the brain. It comes from deep inside the brain. It comes from the limbic system. Stress behaviors are not behaviors that the child chooses. Stress behaviors are caused. And they're caused by, guess what? Excessive stress. So there are all kinds of signs that you can easily teach teachers of when this is a stress behavior. Uh, I'll just give you one example. The voice changes. The pitch goes up. Uh, a child starts to speak at a higher pitch. Why is this so important, this first step? Because if you punish or if you even get angry or, or lose your temper or any of these uh, behaviors, these punitive behaviors that we use with kids, if you do that with a stress behavior, you are dramatically increasing the stress load that that child is under um, in a very serious way. And uh, one of the things I read on your website is, you know, you're very strongly opposed to restraint. In our world, that's like the worst thing you can do to a child because now you have crossed the boundary into trauma. Now you are traumatizing a child. Mm -hmm. um, uh, can I give you a little story just so people can understand what we're talking Absolutely. about here? Because yeah. this is this is sort of pivotal. Mm -hmm. This idea of reframing. Um, you know what we find is that when teachers learn how to reframe, and they have to do a lot of self-reg to get there, uh, what happens is two things. Uh, their own stress drops dramatically, very quickly. 
So the tension that they're feeling, which is one of the reasons why they become explosive, drops. But the other more important thing is they see a new kid. They see a kid now with new eyes, soft eyes. They see the stress that this child is struggling with. So I was explaining all this stuff and I was, you know, very concerned about the use of restraint in uh, Canadian schools. And so I had gone on a bit of a crusade trying to, you know, explain reframing. And one day my staff, uh, my therapist brought in a video and I won't mention the name of the show, but people can probably figure it out. But it was a show that had been shown on the weekend. And it was someone who uh, advertised herself as this wonderful caregiver that could teach parents how to control the most, uh, the most unruly of behaviors in their children. And she would do it magically within the 30-minute span of the TV show. So there was a five-year-old girl and it was quite clear to me watching this child in the beginning that this was a child that was, um, I, was, I suspected strongly was on the spectrum, uh, high functioning, but on the spectrum. And one of the things that means, uh, and I'm sure you've discussed this endlessly in your show, is that typically these children um, have low, uh, low sensory thresholds for different kinds of stress. So they can be overstressed much more quickly than, say, uh, a typical child, a neurotypical child. Um, things like noise or things like uh, too, much, uh, too much visual stimulation, these can be real physical stresses for them. Anyway, so here's this little five-year-old that was quite clear to me that she was in an overstressed state called red brain in our theory. We call it red brain when a child um, really doesn't know what they're doing. These behaviors are coming from deep inside them. And so the, 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 the lady on the TV show takes this child and she puts her on the naughty stool. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, so right off the bat, you know, my own tension is, is, is going up. And then I couldn't believe this was on primetime TV. She held the child by her arms on the chair, on the stool, until the child stopped struggling. And then she turns to the parents and she says, you see, that's all she needed. All she needed was she just needs a bit of firmness and now, now you've got the child that you want. Um, so we studied this very carefully uh, in our institute. We had a, a brain lab on one side and then a clinical uh, uh, institute on the other. So if you take that child and you put her in a brain lab, this child that's not moving now, what you will discover is, first of all, um, she's not being compliant. She is in a state that we call freeze. It's parasympathetic flooding. And when a child is in this state, so now what's happened is through the restraint, you have sent them into freeze. So we've got fight, flight, and then freeze. So fight and flight are driven by adrenaline, by, um, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that, and then push them a little further, and then the parasympathetic system floods them. And they become still, this is an ancient defensive uh, mechanism. But at, but at the same time, this child is in a state of seriously heightened sympathetic arousal. 
And what that means is if we can hook her now, if we take her into, into, the, into the neural lab and we hook her up to our various machines, what we'll find is her heart is beating like crazy. Her brain has got cortical arousal, which means typically we want to see these nice low waves. Her brain is going like this. So in this state, this child is burning enormous amounts of energy. She was already burning a lot of energy when she was overstressed. That's what stress does. It, it, it costs us energy. So now what we've done is we have sent her into the deepest parts of her energy reserves. She is now in a, a borderline state of um, a serious breakdown. This will have serious consequences. So when we talk about, you know, you're going to traumatize the child by restraining them, etc., not only are we talking about a memory that will be stored in the hippocampus, that, that, that this event will be stored in her, but furthermore, she is now prone to burning, constantly burning energy, even while she's sleeping. This is going to affect her mental and physical health sooner or later, probably sooner. So what we wanted uh, teachers to understand is that when we talk about uh, when we talk about the importance of not resorting to restraint, and restraint, by the way, can be verbal. It doesn't have to be physical. What we're talking about is this is a life. This is the well-being of this child, physical and mental. And you have a chance here to you have a chance. Even if this is a child who is prone to becoming overstressed, you have this opportunity to change this child's trajectory. How? Okay, so we've reframed. We've seen that this is that this is a case of um, a child who's really excessive under an excessive stress load, whatever that might be. Um, and we can talk about that later if you want, Beth. Uh, and uh, now the question is, okay, what next? What do I do? Okay, so I understand what Shanker's saying. I understand the kid's overstressed. What am I supposed to do? Well, the next step, step two of self-reg is you got to figure out the stresses. And that's not so easy. So that's uh, part of the training that we do is explaining. We, we did uh, what's called a stress inventory. Uh, what are the stresses that typically affect a child? And we interviewed, we uh, used the internet. We came up with literally uh, a couple of thousand different kinds of stresses that a child can be affected by. And some of them, things you would never dream could be a stress. So I'll give you an example. I won't explain it in detail, but soft drinks can be a stress, a physiological stress. Mm-hmm. So then we did a fact, what's called a factor analysis. And we... Um, and we grouped all these into five basic groups of stress. Uh, physical stress, so something like crowding, too many kids in a, too many kids in a small space. Um, physical stress, emotional stress, that's kind of easy. Uh, cognitive stress is what the last book is about. Cognitive stress, you know, you want an example? Okay, math. Math is a cognitive stress. And we can explain why it's a cognitive stress. Once we understand why it's a cognitive stress, we can figure out ways to reduce that stress. I'll get to that in a second. 
the fourth is social stress. Um, and that's easy. That's anybody can figure that out. And then the last one is pro-social stress. The ways that we expect children to behave, to be uh, seen as a good kid, a nice mm-hmm. kid. Okay. So you've done that now. You And we we're constantly explaining to parents that, you know, you may think that this, you know what the stress is, that there's an obvious stress. And there's a nice example of that in the self-reg book, the second book uh, in the, in the series that Beth mentioned. Um, Don't jump to that conclusion because something that stresses the child today may not have done so yesterday. So we have to get a, a, we have to get a broader picture of the stresses that the child is under. And typically what we find, let's say it's an emotional stress, so we're talking about teens, uh, and it's easy to pick the emotional stress. But we find that, in fact, there was quite a lot of physical stress leading up to this. So we really want to be thorough looking at the stress. We talk to parents about you have to become a, a stress detective. Look at all five domains. Next step, Step three, reduce the stress. And how do you reduce the stress? Well, you know, let's say we use an example. Let's say it's the, uh, the child is stressed by noise. Okay, turn off the radio, turn off the TV, reduce the noise. Step four is the hard one. Step four is sort of the pivot in, in, in self-reg. And this is we want the child to become calm. Now, what we have found in our work is that I'll only speak of Canada, but I I suspect the U.S. is the same. Uh, We have a generation of children who do not know what calmness is, Mm. who do not know what it means to be calm, what it means to be in that state where your tension has relaxed, where your mind has relaxed, where the waves are slow. In fact, there's a shift that goes on, a neural shift that we could, you know, in a neuroscience Uh, class, I would talk about the shift that goes on from one part of the brain to a different part of the brain. And um, so we can measure calmness, literally. Um, I can measure it by what's coming off the child's skin, but I can also see calmness. I can see their shoulders drop. I can see the muscles in their face drop. And that example I gave you before, the kid on the naughty stool, tells us there's a huge difference between quiet and calm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so calmness is an embodied state. And that leads to the fifth step. And the fifth step is called restoration. Restoration is, again, a psychophysiological concept. And essentially, um, what has to happen once you've gotten to calm, you're in a state where you can begin to refill your tank. The child's tank, the child's fuel, or child runs on glucose. Uh, when a child's overstressed, they burn all their glucose. Uh, if they're punished, they go into their reserves. They're now burning the glucose stored in their fat cells. So I've got to refill all that. I've got to give them back all that glucose so that um, so that they're happy, so that they're they're optimistic, they're positive, so that they're you know everything about them now is primed to learn. They can do well now in school. So how do I help a child restore? And the answer is get to know the child because every kid is different. Okay, right. So th- those are the five steps. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which, which brings us to the relationship piece and how critical that relationship piece is. You know, when you get to know a child, amazing things can happen. There's so much you said there and so many things that popped into probably my mind and Beth's as well. One of the things I, I just wanted to touch on a little bit is we often have heard people justify the use of seclusion as well. We, we put them in seclusion so they can calm. Now, of course, uh, you know, we, we can recognize that seclusion is leading to distress, that it's leading to trauma. Um, uh, but there's a, there's a, I think a, you, you really summed this up well when you were talking about the difference between uh, being regulated or, or being worn out. And, and, you know, people often think because the child at the end uh, has given up and has, has you know, um, how, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we help people to understand that difference, uh, between something that, I mean, you know, the, the child, you know, the, and, and often these are very young children. These are, you know, seven, eight, yep. nine year old children who, who may not even really have the ability to regulate on their own. How do we communicate that more effectively to people? <laughs> Well, That's we, a good question, right? <laughs> okay, so uh, there's lots of guys that are talking about this. So um, I'll I'll tell you how we talk about it in self rank So um, because my my training and background were in neuroscience, um, we use a fancy little term for this, and the fancy term is called secondary altruity. Uh, this is a this was discovered by a Swiss biologist in the middle of the 20th century, but nobody paid attention until 1978. And um, that was because Stephen Jay Gould wrote one of his famous articles on it. Um, and I forget the name of the article now, the baby is the father of the man or something. But essentially what it is about, and what uh, De Groot discovered is that human babies, all human babies, are born premature. Our species is born premature. Um, about somewhere between, uh, there's various estimates, somewhere between four months and a year premature. Why do we think that? We think it because at the moment of birth, at the moment of parturition, the child's brain goes through this explosion of brain growth. So brain synapses, well, we measure brain growth by synapses. Synapses are produced around 700 synapses every single second for the first year of life. So the brain is exploding. And the idea here is simply that, uh, that uh, there's only so big a brain that we could give birth to as a species and females remain able to walk upright. You know, I once gave a lecture about this to a group of 5,000 kindergarten teachers and I explaining all this. And so I said, you know, nature decided around 3 million years ago, uh, this was the maximum size we could give birth to. And this voice at the back of the room shouts out, nature went too far. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked her what she meant. She says, Shanker, you never heard of an episiotomy? <laughs> <laughs> So, but the point is a good one, right? So, so here's the idea. So, so the size of our uh, infant's brain is the same as it was three million years ago uh, at birth. Uh, but what we do know is that with each new human species, the adult brain got bigger and bigger and bigger. So most of that that um, brain growth is occurring outside the womb. So here's the point, guy. We talk about a critical transition from the fetus inside the womb 
to the fetus outside the womb. We talk about the newborn as essentially um, a, a, still a fetus, totally dependent on its caregiver to, um, you know, keep it warm, keep it uh, fed, etc. It is totally defenseless. But that raises a very interesting question for us. Inside the womb, we know that the baby is attached to the mother by the umbilical cord. So if you want to talk about these newborns as still fetuses, what takes the place of the umbilical cord? And the answer is something called the interbrain. So the interbrain, that's a term that was coined uh, by a British psychologist called Digby Tantum. Um, there's been a bunch of us that have been talking about the interbrain um, since the early 90s. And the, you use a very interesting word, Guy. It's a word that we use. The role of the caregiver is to regulate a baby's stress load. Remember, newborn is exposed to stresses they've never encountered before. Just this incredible surge of, you know, light and noise and temperature, and they've got to breathe, they've got to digest, all these things that they never had to do. So it's up to this external brain to regulate the child's stress. And so she watches the baby and she sees when the baby's cold, she puts a cold air as a stress. She puts a blanket on. The kid can't do that. The baby can't do that. Mm -hmm. So that connection, that interbrain connection is not, uh, Beth used a word before that I'll, that I'll, that is worth mentioning here. She said that self-reg, and she said rightly, that self-reg is a very cognitive approach. The first steps are cognitive. But the interbrain is not. The interbrain is not a cognitive connection. It is a connection between the caregiver's limbic system, deep inside the caregiver's brain, and the baby's limbic system. This is a brain-to-brain -brain hookup. It's a wire. We talk about it as a Bluetooth connection, a wireless connection, and it's done through all kinds of sensory modalities. This interbrain connection is absolutely vital for a couple of things. Okay, so, you know, I see the baby's hungry. I see the baby's tired. Okay, obvious things. But there's another thing. Uh, the American psychologist Steve Porges has coined the term neuroception. Neuroception is the kind of perception that the limbic system does. This is a pre-verbal form of of perception. It's it's limbic perception. That's why he called it neuroception. So the baby is constantly the baby. What's the baby's greatest need? A baby's greatest need is to feel safe. The baby is constantly scanning or her limbic system is scanning the environment. Am I safe? If, if that neuroceptive system says I'm not safe, she has a special cry that brings mummy, um, that brings mummy running or whoever the primary caregiver is, daddy or grandma or aunt and uncle, whoever it is. So here's the thing about the interbrain. The interbrain remains an incredibly powerful source of our feeling of safety 
throughout our lifespan. We now know that we can dramatically improve the medical condition of seniors, of the elderly, by restoring interbrain connections in their lives. So uh, we, our brain is wired to need someone that we regard as a secure base, hence the term secure attachment, to make us feel safe, to turn off my alarm. Okay, now, all of this is my way of answering Guy's question. So here I've got this child now, and for whatever reason, the child's been put into seclusion. And what that tells us is that undoubtedly, the child's limbic system has an alarm. We just call it the limbic alarm. It's the amygdala. And that alarm has been triggered. That alarm is sending the child into fight or flight. So here we have now whoever it is, say a teacher, and we've she's got a kid that's in fight or flight. Um, why the kid got there is where we would go next because we want to prevent all this. But right. it, for the moment, I now have this child who's in fight or flight. I have this child whose alarm is shouting fire, fire, fire. How do I turn off the alarm? If I put that child into, an iso into isolation, I am denying the most important biological imperative that that child has, which is I need someone now. I need my interbrain to make me feel safe so that this alarm can turn off. In isolation, there is no interbrain. And then we get to the rest of everything that Guy said. So now what's going to happen is through entropy, she's just basically going to burn out through all of her energy. And then once, uh, once she's run out of energy, then then she goes into a dysregulated state and everything quiets down and you think, oh, well, now, now you see the seclusions work. Uh, but what you've really done is contrary to everything we know about biology. One of the questions that I get asked all the time is, okay, so what you're saying, I mean, when I'm talking to teachers, so what you're saying is, is uh, you know, that okay, I get it. Uh, that this child needs needs that brain to brain hookup in order to turn off her alarm. But I've got twenty five other kids in the room. How am I supposed to do that with this child? So there are various answers to that. But the first and the most important answer is well, it's got to be done. If what we want to do is we want to um, we want to turn off the alarm so that she's not burning through all of her glucose, then there has to be that secure um, internet, interbrain connection. So we've experimented with different things um, in, in my own province in Ontario. And what we found is um, 10 times out of 10, the educational assistant uh, is a godsend in this situation because the educational assistant has had a chance to create that secure relationship where the ch where she can read or he can read the child's signals uh, but also where the child feels safe with this person that child must be with someone that they feel safe with mm -hmm. the next part right. of the argument is how on earth did you get to that but i won't go into that <laughs> well I, I will i want to there are a couple things that have been going around in my head the first is 
uh, when I've heard things talk about how to do um, self-regulatory um, help for kids, uh, that you could target three different areas, the cognitive, the uh, midbrain, and the survivor brain. And, and what strikes me is that, and, and I'm probably wrong, but let me just check, that the inner brain is really the mediator for the midbrain and the survivor yes. brain. Okay. That's oh, exactly okay. right. <laughs> All right. And I never thought of it that way. That's fabulous. The other thing that strikes me, and it struck me for a long time, is that our our most common system in the, in the United States for um, behavior management, I don't care for the term behavior management, but anyway, the school system for maintaining discipline and control, and, and really it's promoted as um, being positive, um, is all cognitively based. Everything yeah. is about teaching You're making the a great point. Okay. Yeah. And so that's where I struggle because um, that's great. if there are how do we get the folks who are so um, committed to this approach to see that there's more than cognitive? Um, um, okay. So it's a wonderful point, Beth. Um, and now we're going to have to do a little bit more brain. Uh, so one of the things that happens when, when a child goes red brain, okay, so we're talking now about a child that has uh, their alarm has been triggered by a threat, by what their neuroception says is threat. Uh, they've been highly stressed, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so now they've gone, they're poised or they're already in fight or flight. But there is a shift that occurs. And the shift we talk about in self-reg is from blue brain to red brain, which is based on our neuroimaging colors. Blue brain is the cognitive brain. Blue brain is, there's a couple of centers that we talk about. Um, these are the centers that that speak. So speech is a, a it's on the left side of our of our neocortex. It's a very blue brain. Um, it's a very blue brain faculty. Uh, problem solving, paying attention, listening. All of these are blue brain. And we now know that when a child when, when a child goes into fight or flight, it suppresses these neocortical functions. It suppresses the, uh, I won't go into the names of the brain areas, but it suppresses that blue brain um, that would process what you're saying. So here we have a child who's now in a state where they can't process anything that you're saying. And typically, um, there's a nice example of this in Reframed. Um, I got called into this school um, uh, near me because there was a 13-year-old um, who had gone into red brain. And uh, the vice principal kept on ratcheting up the punishments. And so now they were, uh, they were at the point where they were ready to expel the kid. What he'd done was innocuous. It was, it was, you know, he had said something inappropriate to a girl, um, but he's 13 years old. I mean, you know, okay. Um, what made them nuts, the teachers, the, the vice principal, what made them all crazy was that they said to him, you know, you're going to have a detention. And he answered, I don't care. And every, and then she said to him, well, you better care, mister. 
And so they kept on going up and up and up. And he kept on saying, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But this was a school that I'd worked with and the principal had adopted a no expulsion. They would not expel children. So here we'd had a case where what started off as a minor in social infraction was now going to lead, they were being pushed. They felt, um, you know, their credibility was on the line, how they appeared to the other teachers, uh, to the other students, how they appeared to parents. They had to, they had to take a stand, but they didn't want to. The thing is that when he said, I don't care, it's what we call a limbic utterance. And um, there's different ways of telling when it's a limbic utterance. But basically, um, you just go by tone of voice and, you know, how he looked. Uh, and he was, he was in a very defensive posture. He wanted to escape. He wanted to, uh, you know, all he was intent on doing was say, you know, whatever to get out of here. And at that point, he would have welcomed being expelled because he couldn't think through consequences. He, that thinking part of his brain has offline. And all of these threats that they were making, he couldn't process other than as a threat. So what had to happen here was the very first thing that had to happen. It wasn't that hard either was everybody stopped talking. Talking becomes a stress in its own right. Mm -hmm. For God's sake, don't threaten, but let's not even talk. Let's just lower the temperature here. I When I came in, there's a whole bunch of them in this little room, and the kid is sitting, and everybody's standing. And I thought, okay, you know, this poor kid, you know. So, okay, everybody leave. Okay, all of you go. And, and then so what I did was I just sat down. I turned off the lights. I sat down, um, and I didn't say a word. Just because he doesn't know me. He, he knew me, actually. He's a child of a friend. But in this situation, I'm a stranger. And so all he needed to do was gradually relax, gradually let that, the, 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 all of the alarm systems have sent him into a very high tension, low energy state. So what we're going to do is we're just going to lower the temperature and then He'll tell me when he's ready to talk. And it didn't take that long. There will come a time when you can explain to him that that was inappropriate behavior. This isn't that time. Okay. When will that time come when we can have that conversation? I don't know. Um, uh, with my own children, I found um, that that time came when we were driving somewhere. There was something about sitting beside me where they didn't have the threat of looking together and then maybe it's the vibrations of the car, whatever. Um, we've had parents tell us that they found that they could do it via texting. <laughs> you know, you figure it out with your kid. But the point is in this survival situation, no good's going to come from you trying to, you know, resorting to cognitive a cognitive approach that he is not able to process so um, the term that Beth used, so she said this is a midbrain connection. This is a limbic connection, and it is. It's a limbic to limbic, and what he needed to feel was that in my presence, he was safe. 
That's all he needed to feel. And gradually then um, uh, the advice that we gave was, you know, let's let him go home. Let's let it cool off. Let mom and dad have the conversation. Wait until he's receptive, you know, so that he can learn, you know, that that you don't say things like that. You don't word it out in class. So, um, uh, I, I do like what positive psychologists are trying to do. I really do like it. But I also feel that with this model, it's called a triune brain model. With this model, it also tells us when there's times not to talk. When there's mm -hmm. times, just let the interbrain connection come back. Is that a good enough answer, Beth? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I think getting that point across is, is hard, and especially because there are so many people that they're primary focus is on consequences, that kids are only going to learn by having consequences. Um, and I think yeah. that gets in the way of doing uh, what the child needs. What so, you know, we have this, we have this thing, we have a saying up here, and I, I'm sure you must have it too, the, uh, the grade three to prison pipeline. Uh, or nursery or birth. Yes, or, I heard I heard yeah. it's been uh, I read Kirk uh, recently saying it's now they pushed it back to preschool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um uh so the thing is what we're all about is um we really do want to change trajectories. Mm -hmm. And we're never going to change trajectories by this um it's a Victorian concept, this consequences idea. So, you know, we're talking about a 10-year-old now uh, in, in grade three. Mm -hmm. And we know from psychology, we know that by the age of 10, certain behaviors have become deeply entrenched. Mm -hmm. And these are essentially their self-protective behaviors. They are behaviors for a child who's grown up in God knows what kinds of circumstances or a child who, for biological reasons, is, um, you know, needed to be treated with kindness and compassion from day one and wasn't um, in his society. So how do we change, how do we change teachers' attitudes? That's your question. Mm -hmm. And that's our job, right? That's what we've been in the business of doing. Mm -hmm. So, So what we have found is that teachers are human too, and they become defensive. Mm -hmm. uh, defensive behavior is a way of coping with stress. It's very stressful. Um, deep down, they became a teacher because they wanted to help children. Uh, they become overstressed by, by a, a kid who's got this entrenched pattern. But there isn't a point at which we can't change this child's trajectory because we can teach this 10-year-old or this 15-year-old how to regulate themselves. We can teach them self-regulation in a constructive manner. And what we find is that um, basically the motivation is there. They just don't, they lack the skills. But how do I get this point across to a teacher that's so wedded to this model that's not working? Hmm. So here's what we say to teachers. Whenever you've got this situation with a kid, we want you to ask two questions. Why? And why now? What does this do? Well, 
there's another aspect of the interbrain, which is called limbic contagion. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that I can have this 13-year-old now who is in this state of heightened arousal, and that is instantly communicated to my limbic brain. I instantly become aroused, or if he's angry, I become angry. If he's whatever it is, we match. That's one of the ways our brains were designed. What we, the reason why we ask them to, to ask why and why now is it inserts a pause. It puts a pause before the reaction. What that does is it allows you the opportunity to um, downregulate your own arousal. Then, so the first one you, you say is why, but you're asking why not in an accusative accusatory manner, but rather why in a genuinely, you know, like as a stress detector, why, why, why is this happening? And now we go into why now, and now what's happened is you're switching your own frame. You have now reframed. And so instead of a consequence mentality, you're now in an investigative, a scientific mentality. You are generally interested in so I, I just want to tell you a really interesting, um, a really interesting little story. Uh, I was talking to a group that had had Ross Green um, and uh, didn't quite believe what Ross is saying, uh, and they should have. <laughs> uh, so they 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 had me uh, they had me come in after Ross. Um, I mean, uh, like a month or two later, um, but I actually think Ross pretty much nailed all this. Um, and uh, they asked me to come in to talk about the explosive child. So um, I sat down, you know, it was a big crowd. And I thought, you know, I'm at a point in my career, I don't care if they like me or not. <laughs> so I sat down on the front of the stage and I said, okay, I, just before I start, I want to tell you that there's no such thing as an explosive child. So everybody goes nuts and they're all yelling at me. <laughs> So I said, okay, I need a volunteer. I said, I can only handle one person yelling at me at a time. So I need a volunteer who's clear case of um, of a kid that uh, that was an uh, explosive child. So I get my volunteer, and um, and she tells us the story about this this um, he. Uh, I want to say he was primary, so it's probably like grade five or six, so maybe eleven or twelve years old, and. Uh, uh, it happened in the early afternoon after after lunch, you know, bang, and uh, he threw a desk or whatever. So she said, so she says to me, "If that's not explosive, I don't know what is." And I said, well, "It's great. It's a great example." So I said, "When he came in that morning, did you have any sense that maybe this was going to be a hard day?" And she sort of paused, and she, said, "Well, now that you mention it." Hmm. I was a bit concerned when he walked in because he had his hoodie pulled over his eyes and he slumped down. Now, there's a very interesting thing about stress. So I talked about how in fight or flight, it shuts down, uh, it shuts down um, uh, the thinking part or the language part of our brain. But heightened stress does something else, excessive stress. Um, what it does is it arouses the amygdala, 
So we've talked about that, right? This thing inside the brain. Mm -hmm. And it suppresses the what's called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the awareness part of our brain. So what that means for personal well-being is that I can be uh, very, very stressed and it can be affecting my body. Um, it can be, I can have a heart condition or I can have, um, I can have ulcers and my body's sending me signals that, you know, there's something wrong here, but my stress is so high that it shuts down my awareness. It shuts down. It's called embodied awareness. And that's the bugger about stress. And that's why these problems grow and grow and grow until one day you suddenly find I've got a serious heart condition. I've got a serious ulcer. The same thing, the same point applies to the teacher. Teachers are under tremendous stress. Yeah. And so, so she had this kid come in and her warning sign, her awareness told, uh, told her that he, this was going to be a bad day. But we suppress that when we're under a lot of stress. We, we, we put it aside. We, you know, we ignore the, the, the chest pains. Part of us is hoping that maybe, you know, it'll just go away. Maybe it's not serious. Maybe it's just gas. Well, the same happens with the teacher. Her stress, her, her we do have stress antenna. We have this interbrain, and she has it with every one of the kids. And her interbrain was telling her this was not going to be a good day. Mm -hmm. That becomes a stress at the back of her mind, and it grows and grows and grows. And then finally, what's happened is the interbrain has now collapsed. They're no longer co-regulating, and bang, he's he's gone. But in retrospect, we now see. I had a chance to prevent this. Mm. I had that chance when he walked in the door. What did he need? What exactly could I have done? Well, there's lots of things I could have done. Uh, maybe what I could have done is instead of forcing him to, you know, we're straight into math, let's take a break. Let's, you know, go, you know, I got a little part of my classroom, which is a library. Go back there and read, just, you know, regroup. Paying attention now to his signals, I can see when that stress, in fact, his facial complexion, just the complexion tells you when he's calming down. Don't think that, don't push until you get to the situation where now it's time for consequences. Mm -hmm. so, so what we have to do is, um, then what we have to figure out is, uh, and I'm thinking now of a question that Beth asked about 10 minutes ago. You know, how do we help teachers? How do we help teachers process what we're saying? What we have learned. Uh, so we do a summer symposium, which I believe you've been to. Uh, I haven't, have but I signed up oh. for this year. Oh, yeah. Uh, someone, I was uh, talking about you and uh, they told me, I, I thought that they said you'd come. So, um, it's really nice when we can do it in person, but we'll do the best we can online. But uh, at our very first summer symposium, so this is our seventh, at our first one, uh, the teachers said to us, um, at the very last day, we had a day yourself, right? And they all said to us in um, the comments afterwards, this should have been day one. So from there on, every year, we've done teacher self-reg um, we've done teacher self-reg before we do any of the learning stuff. 
And what we've learned is, if what I want is what you said, Beth, I want that receptivity. First, let me make sure they're calm. Let mm -hmm. me make sure, because this is a tough job in a, in a, in a country where they're not getting a hell of a lot of support from their administration. Mm -hmm. Right. So we start off with their needs, their well-being. And then when they're in that nice blue brain balanced state, now we can start to talk about why, why now? Or, okay. But if I try to do this to a teacher that's, that's, you know, really, you know, just holding on by the fingertips, that message is not going to get through. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I love the questions of why and why now. And, and I love the idea of, 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 again, you know, let's let's first help teachers look at their own stress. Yep. Uh, you know, we've heard this message a lot. You know, we, uh, an unregulated adult's not going to be able to help nope. regulate a child that's in need. And in fact, yep. what we see in practice is that it's very often a perhaps well-intentioned but not appropriately trained staff member who's not only failing to de-escalate a child but is actually yes. escalating them. And, and part of that perfect. is, is perfect. culture. Yeah, part of that is training. But, you know, the other thing that's entrenched in a lot of our schools is, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, we, we kind of mentioned some of the behaviorism and, you know, a lot of where that begins is looking at, OK, well, what was the antecedent? Uh, you know, what was the function of the behavior? And, and, and rather than asking the important questions, uh, it becomes very much a focused search on matching the behavior with with some intent. And, and, you know, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And, and then, of course, that, that leads to a problem of, you know, um, they're, they're not considering the fact that some behavior is, is not volitional. They're not considering no. uh, how trauma can affect the brain or yeah. disability or other yeah. things. Um, but it's really entrenched. I mean, a lot of these, you know, I had a behaviorist that told me, yeah. and, and I've quoted this a couple of times, I don't care why it's happening. I just <laughs> want to change it. That was a quote from, from our behaviorist. You, know what the, you want to know what the answer to that is? How's that working for you? That's yeah. right. That's, right. <laughs> That's the thing. They, they, I know it's not working well. We have years and years yeah. of data where we're yep. still seeing all the yep. negative consequences, but it doesn't but, but seem some people to think we need to double down. <laughs> yep. yeah, oh, of double down is the answer. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm, I want to ask you two things and I That's think great, we're probably close yeah. to the, to the time. Um, one of the things you talked about, I think it was in November um, at the first Global Self Reg, was about uh, talking about how we we are so um, um, I can't think of the word right now, but at opposite ends of the pole, and it's hard to communicate when you have. Polarized. And I think about polarized, <laughs> and I think about this with with people yeah, who think discipline and. And, uh, and discipline the way it, it's been traditionally, not the discipline meaning to teach, but the discipline meaning to punish. <laughs> um, and uh, consequences are the way to toughen up the kid versus the, the, the new the understanding that's come in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, yes. So polarized and it's hard because you went back to how it gets ingrained in our brains. And so we're, we're not just talking about ideas that we can share, but they're kind of entrenched. So that to me is knowledge is power, but it's also a little bit discouraging. Um, I'm going to, I'm framing that. <laughs> I'm framing that because I think one of the things that I think has to happen is at the, um, at the 
leadership level and the top leadership levels, the legislators, the um, education departments have got to be the ones who begin to see the difference because the people on the, on the ground floor are beating their heads against the wall trying to make some of these changes. But until there is an understanding at these higher levels, I think we continue to beat heads against the wall. So um, could you fix that for us? <laughs> well, let me give you a, let me give you the answer I was thinking when you said it. So I am hopeful. I am very hopeful. So how do you do this? How do you do what Beth is asking? Well, that's what Guy's doing. This is going to work. This is going to penetrate. So look at your numbers. The numbers tell the story. So you get, so, oh, guess what? You know, we got another, we, we jumped up another 20, 20 people this, this week. You know, it's a slow incremental growth. It occurs in Spanish. You say, palatinamente, you know, step by step. You're part of, I, I, I referred to it recently as riding the wave. There's a wave going on now. I see it in Canada. It will happen in your country too. So what would I like to see happen? I would like to see Guy have so many thousands of new listeners that he's, that he's pulling out the few hairs that are left on his head. <laughs> there are many there. <laughs> These are the signs you look for. These are the voices. And I get an awful lot of people from the U.S. now that are picking up on this. It is happening. It doesn't happen quickly. These, you're absolutely right. I'm just reading now the book by uh, Jill Lepore, These Truths, uh, fabulous book. You know, I can't believe how much of this current polarization goes back to when they were trying to write the Constitution. So, um, so, so this is not going to be an easy fix. Is the fix happening? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think hope is important and it's, it's easy sometimes to, to, to be frustrated and feel like we're not making progress fast enough. But, but, you know, I think you're right. I think we are, we, we need to do more to get the brain science um, into yeah. our education system. I mean, to me, one of the biggest things I've learned since this journey began was just kind of understanding really what's happening inside of the brain when when we're yeah. seeing some of the things that are becoming difficult for people to to work through. Yeah. Uh, and, and that seems like such a critical piece that that is missing. I agree. And, and, and Beth made a very important point. You know, she said this is going back 20 or 30 years ago. Well, that's exactly how long it's been when we could look inside the brain. We didn't have this. We didn't have this data right. before. Now right. we're beginning right. to understand what's going on. Yeah, but unfortunately, we're still lagging twenty or thirty years behind yeah, in many so. parts of education. But but that's you know, I mean, that's the role that that you know, people like all of us are playing to try to get awareness of, of yes. what we can be doing differently. So let me let me touch back on the point you made about um, you know, kind of the the teachers uh, that you work with and. Um, um, maybe kind of blend that in with with some of the work. So, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the Merit Center and the kinds of things that you do to, um, you know, to support, you know, not just children and families, but, but you know, educators. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about it, I'm like, oh, gee, we're going to have to have them back for another session and talk about <laughs> how to help, because that's part of our role here. So, you know, we, we want... Yeah. You know, we want you know not just to be angry about what's happening, but to to work together to figure out how we can solve the problem. And you know, I, I'd love uh, at some point to talk to you about doing something like that. But can you tell us more about the work that you're doing and opportunities for folks that want to learn more about what you're doing or get involved in your training? Okay, so that's a two part question. So let me do part one. Okay. The 
number one question that we get asked, especially when we talk to uh, administrators, is, but we're educators. So at the end of the day, our job is to teach. Our job is to educate. Um, and, you know, you're just talking about behavior. Uh, no, we're not. So I'll tell you a little story. Um, we did a seven-year RCT. And um, we were really looking at self-regulation. But because it was a randomized control trial, there were certain measures we had to do. And one of them was IQ. So um, we couldn't care less about IQ, but we had to do it just to satisfy the constraints of, of you know, mm -hmm. psych. So we chose, uh, so, and you have to do it with, you use a psychometrician who's not part of the institute, who's arm's length, otherwise you're cooking your data. So, um, so we had this psychometrician that she looked pretty kind of scary to us. So we were worried about it, um, you know, and, and she would, when she came in, she was, she was in a, she was in a rush. Uh, and I think she was just upset about how many kids she had to test because there's a lot of kids in the study. So we thought, okay, we're going to prime her. Okay. So priming, you know, in psych, right. So we're going to give her our very best kid first mm -hmm. so that, so that it will prime her to see our kids in a good light. Cause we didn't want anybody to say that they all had, you know, like, you know, IQs of below, say below 80. Um, so we chose our smartest little guy and he was really, really smart. And so we're all huddled me and the senior scientists were huddled in our observation room. We're watching all this and she is stressing the hell out of this little guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's doing standard IQ tests, you know, where each, each step gets a little harder and he's getting more and more fussed. And all of a sudden he stands up and he puts his hands on his hips and he says to her, I want to jump. Uh, so <laughs> this is a little guy in the spectrum. <laughs> So, you know, our answer would have been, we would have jumped with him. Um, but instead she says to him, no, just 15 more minutes and then you can jump as much as you want. And so she won't let him jump. So she forces him to sit down and he's, he's done. He's not going to, he's not going to answer another question. So she writes down, you know, that he's got a subpar IQ, but we knew that this little guy had an IQ that was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, 120, like smart little guy. Mm -hmm. So, oh, this was a real, this is a real um, epiphany. We realized that there's this thing called limbic breaks, and that really is for another show. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if a kid's limbic breaks kick in, and it stops him from answering your IQ tests. It stops him from answering your math question. And you think all he needs is, you know, I, you, you can do this. I'm going to push him. And if you don't do it, you're going to come back to what Beth said. You're going to pay the consequences. You'll have no one else to blame but yourself for not trying. So you've just created a child with high math anxiety. And it doesn't take very much. It only takes one episode to do this. But if instead you had said to that child, go ahead and jump. You need to walk around, get up and walk around. You want to fidget, go fidget. Because my purpose here as a teacher is actually to teach you math. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that if I don't push them to override their breaks, what happens is 
they will restore and they will do what you thought they couldn't. They will master. And I've seen this over and over. And we have math instructors now in your country that have really made huge advances in how you can teach math in a way that helps every single child. But we are at a point, and I'm sure you're at the same point, in Canada, where about 40% 40 of all 10-year-olds have high math anxiety. How Mm. on earth did that happen? It happened because you didn't reframe. It happened because of your lack of reframing. You didn't see when you needed to, you know, two steps forward, one step back, whatever. So this is not just a story about behavior. This is a story about what we believe in. This is a story about how well they're going to do in school. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you've the fact that you've thrown so much money at, at the problem of closing the so-called achievement gap, um, and and your numbers have basically stayed stayed flat, tells us that this is a story about the incredible stress that an awful lot of kids are under. And if you just understood this, you would have a child who not only could learn absolutely loved it absolutely Mm. and we have example after example of kids who go on once we do this they go on to love math and because i mean have you met a high functioning kid on the spectrum who's not going to excel if you give him the, the the tools so what we want educators to understand is that at the end of the day we're on your side we believe in education we want to make this happen for every single kid And what's more, I can take the kids that are doing really well and I can make them do even better or be really healthy. I can make them so, uh, I I won't mention all the studies now, but, you know, we know from guys like Zhao Yang that the kids who are uh, excelling uh, academically are paying a very high cost in terms of mental and or physical well-being. So we want the whole picture. This This is a holistic picture. Okay, part two of your question, where can they get more? Read my books. Go online to self-reg.ca. There's all kinds of things that can be downloaded for free. There's a parent newsletter. There's a parent, uh, there's a parent group. Uh, there are a parent course. There's all kinds of materials that you can get uh, if you go online. And then uh, for the international side, self-reg global, uh, no, self-regulation global.com and again all kinds of stuff and beth um i'm doing a real good one this month in two weeks um uh for my annual uh, for my monthly uh webinar uh i'm going to be talking about um uh uh, let me think of a a simple way of saying this um i'm going to be talking about the origins of what I just mentioned to Guy, the origins of our thinking that we accomplish what we want by pushing a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, we get what we want when we understand a child and when that child feels safe with us. That's I can't wait. And, and the one you did last month was about, I believe it was telos, is that the word? Yeah. yeah that talked about how long how, and how ingrained this is. So I'm just going to say my... A guy usually asks me a, a final question. Rather than a question, I'm going to say how much I appreciate everything that you're doing and how much I have learned from it. And um, wonderful. I just, 
Really you, you, you know, I usually give Beth the final question, and, and she's really good at getting it to be about an eight-part question. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today, and we really look forward to, to sharing this with our audience. Uh, would love to, to look for other opportunities to, to work with you and, and share the work that you're doing. Um, this is so important, and, you know, I, I always go back to this idea, if, if we can do better, we need to do better, and I love it. the place where we've got to do it. And we absolutely have the, the capability. Uh, I want to thank our audience for joining in today. And, uh, you know, please uh, check out the books and check out the website. And uh, thank you so much. So this will wrap up our broadcast. I will go ahead and.